do a sound check. It's good, isn't it? It's high enough? Yeah. I'm just wondering how I'm going to start. Um, Something is arising about um, being here with you in a country that's not the country that I live in and um, appreciating what I'm meeting, who I'm meeting, that we're meeting. It's been a real privilege in the groups and uh, thank you for your practice and the particular qualities that you bring each individually and also collectively.
이렇게요. 해 Tonight I'd like to reflect on teaching of what is sometimes the four elements, sometimes the five elements from the Buddha and um, as a way of both reflection, contemplation and as a way of um, trying on the lens I'll say a little bit more what I mean. Trying on the lens of perceiving the world, perceiving inner experience and outer experience through the lens of the four and five or five elements. So just to back up a little bit, the Buddha teaches freedom, teaches the end of suffering. And how part of how he does that and what he offers us is that we train We train on many levels, but on the meditative level, we train to steady the mind, stabilize the mind. And then with that steady mind, we can start to look more deeply, see more deeply, sense more deeply, hear more deeply, not just our physical senses, but the, the metaphor of those senses in the way that the lens of our interaction with each other with ourself is shaped. He teaches us ways of looking, ways of looking into experience, lenses that we can try on. Imagine we've talked about attention like a light. Right? We steady that light, we steady that illuminating capacity. And he invites us to try on different lenses to that light that will then perceive in certain ways. And he said certain ways of perceiving will lead to more suffering. We don't need to try those on. We've got in lots of those. And certain ways of perceiving, certain lenses that you try on will lead to less suffering, will lead onward to more unfolding wisdom, kindness. And of um, there's a nice epithet uh, about the Sangha, lead to incomparable goodness to arise in the world. It doesn't have to be grandiose. It can be on a small scale. It might be grand. I don't know. I don't know where we're heading. So one of these, one of these I'm calling it a lens, so perception, that capacity to um, make meaning through our way of seeing the world, this particular lens tonight about the four or five elements. There are many. Many, many skillful lenses. He says, try on this lens, for example, Um, one that's very much talked about and worthy of contemplation ongoingly is normally, um, commonly, the lens of impermanence. A lot of teachings given about that. As I understand it, he says, try on that. Look through that filter. Look through that filter to see the fact Internally, externally, thought, feeling, perception, materiality, anything that we can know and things that we do not know are finite. They fade. They dwindle. That which is born will move into a process of fading away and decaying. 
So I'm just giving an illustration of a lens. He's not saying impermanence is an ultimate truth. He's saying this is a skillful way of looking into things because it will help release the suffering. It will help release the grip. It will help you go, oh, wow. When I contemplate that, not just intellectually, but from the intellectual into my moment-to-moment-to-moment experience, thought, feeling, sense of self, sensation, etc. Wow, when I'm right here, I see there's not something there for me to to take as mine. This is an example of one lens, and this is one that we teach a lot about, because we can work with that way of looking for a very long time, and it will really serve us. But it's not an ultimate truth. Can you see the difference? He could equally have said, the fact that things change, we can point to the fact that they end. We could also point to the fact that they begin. They appear to begin. It's equally true. Right. I'm, I'm remembering uh, another way of looking at the fact that things change is that things are moving. Right? They wouldn't end unless they were dynamic and in flow and moving and constantly unfolding themselves. And I'm reminded of, a, of another way of looking when um, earlier this year, with uh, thanks to some of you here, I was listening to some of the teachings coming from the One Earth Sangha um, uh, on their training called the Ecosatva training. And one of the modules or episodes or whatever, one of the week's teachings, uh, had a teacher from the First Nation people, and his name was something Ghost Horse. What was it? Teokasan. Teokasan Ghost Horse, that's right. And he was um, describing how from his uh, language and his tradition that one of the, the ways of seeing reality, one of the ways of seeing reality, was a word that he said you can best translate in English. It won't really do it, but you can best translate it as mysteriousing expanding. Right? Was that, that was right, wasn't it? Mysteriousing expanding. Right? It's the same process. We can look at the impermanent aspect. We can look at the fact of impermanence also points to mysterious thing expanding. Have you ever looked at it that way? Your breath. Your body as you breathe in. How about looking at it through that lens? Mysterious thing expanding. Do you ever look at yourself that way? mysterious thing expanding. So there are many ways of seeing. And the Buddha was, I think, quite uh, gifted in pointing to ways of looking that will help us free up. So with the four elements, um, I'll start with a piece from the, if I can find it, from the Satipatthana Sutta, so the teaching of the four foundations of mindfulness where insight meditation, vipassana, is largely drawn from. And I hope I brought it. Ah, yeah. So in the teaching of the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, we've talked about mindfulness of breathing, 
mindfulness of uh, knowing your here-ness and sense of the body. The Buddha says a good number of things about how to practice mindfulness of body, and here's one of the ones he says. He's talking about his monks. He says, in this way they practice knowing body as body, internally and externally. And here's how he starts to use the elements. He says, furthermore, just as a skilled butcher, so please excuse the metaphor if this is (laughs) squeamish for you, furthermore, just as a skilled butcher or his apprentice, having killed a cow, would sit at a crossroads, cutting it up into pieces. The, The monk contemplates this very body, however it stands, however it is disposed, in terms of its properties of the elements. In this body, there is the earth property. In this body, there is the liquid property. In this body, there is the fire property. And in this body, there is the wind property. In this way, the monk remains focused internally and externally, knowing body as body. Let's look a little bit more at that. (laughs) What happens when I offer that? It's one beginning look at these elements, that you consider the body. Let's look just at our own physical bodies to start with. In terms of these four qualities... In this body, just as if it was cut up, there's earth, fire, water, and air. Earth, fire, liquid, sometimes translated, or wind, the wind element. Now, when I first heard teachings like this, it made me feel quite miserable, (laughs) I think. Like, oh... Really? You're asking me to regard and sense into material experience like that? Firstly, why? And I would say the why of it is, is, is multi-leveled, but one why of it is, wow, it's a really different lens than going, oh, something, something wrong with my face there, or, you know, a little bit too much fat here, or, oops, don't quite like how that looks, right? That's one of the suffering lenses, right? We know that one. So it provides, it starts to train the mind, free up the attention, unfixate us from common ways of perceiving and regarding bodies, and to enter us into a whole territory of, I would, I would uh, borrow, if I may, this mysterious thing expanding. Yes, because we want to open the perception in such a way that our relationship with ourself internally and externally is one that has meaning, depth, richness, belonging, and restores us, each other, to what is sacred. Restoring us to what is sacred, I'm using that word to mean the multidimensional, multi-leveled way of being in this world that is rich, that has meaning, that is not bereft of, um, of meaning, which one way sometimes the um, current crisis, current global crisis, some ways critiques have res- uh, reported about this, two I'm going to name. One is that there's a crisis of meaning, 
Right? There's a crisis of what's, you know, we could say is happening to our home. But something about the way we regard the earth, our bodies, each other, has come into crisis. There's a crisis of, one teacher says, a crisis of embodiment, that the current crisis could be described as a crisis of embodiment. And another saying, a crisis of meaning. Through not really having a richness and depth of meaning, not everybody, but those lenses that are shaping the world where materiality is something, material form is something to have, to keep, to take from, to gratify, to make me feel secure, to exploit, to have, to capitalize on, to commodify, etc., etc. So the Buddha's offering us, look in all these different ways, because this will lead onward. This will lead in place to, in directions that are wholesome, that are whole, holistic, that restore each other to the sacred, each other and our world. So let's look in terms of these elements, the liquid element, the water element, sometimes it's called. This can be a great joy to reflect in this way. If you look upon your body or look upon me right now in terms of the water element. Water element, what is that? The liquid aspect is the aspect of body that coheres things. You think of flour, you know, baking flour. baking flour, <laughs> baking flour, you put water in it, it starts to stick together, right? Dare I say we're not so different. We've got a few other little bits of DNA going on as well. But there, there we are, we're stuck together by this water element, literally, right? And as we know, it, well, uh, as probably many of you know, as the water, that which coheres us, uh, dries up uh, upon death, the elements stop sticking together. If you, we leave a body there long enough, the water element disappears and it breaks up, actually. I don't know why I sound so excited, but, you know. <laughs> it's like, right? But it does, right? The good news about that is, is, an, is, is that, wow, how would it be to include that lens when we see each other? Walking through, so we can make this practical, right? This we can go from the big picture scale, and we can go right into the practical. Okay, everyone in this room is perfectly stuck together for the time being, right? I just want you to try that lens on. You can try it on intellectually. You can see if you can resonate a little bit. It's like, well, how would that be to go home and see your mom? your cat, usually easier to practice initially with the cat. <laughs> Mum often has a few other lenses going on, right? <laughs> right? But the, that's the advanced one. We'll get there by the end of the talk. Let's say it's the cat. Wow. It's all stuck together for the time being. It, it won't be like that forever. It wasn't like that. And it won't be like that. 
my, my, I can speak for my cats. I have a lot of joy, even though I'm speaking about, you know, my other poor Mr. Blue. Mr. Blue who died, and we buried him in the garden. He's not stuck together anymore. <laughs> right? Now, the joy in that isn't because I have lost him. There, of course, there is grieving, there is mourning, there was calling out at that loss of that beloved. Right? But something about this stuck together and not stuck together can influence our perception while we're still alive. I was practicing in this way, we can, and we can try on these things. And if they're useful, pick them up and walk through the dining room and look at, you know, don't stare, but, you know, you can see each other. It's a very different prospect. Wow. Look, it's, he's all stuck together. They are all stuck together for the time being. It's very different than, oh, well, they, they're in my space and they took too much porridge. And, all right? We know where those ones lead. I was practicing this and came home you know, practicing it means staying with the uh, lens for a bit. It's not an ultimate truth. It's a useful way of seeing for some of us at a certain time. Coming home and opening the door um, to Yanai, and, uh, and it's like, wow, he is all stuck together <laughs> for the time being. For the time being, it's not a given. So this is how we can play really play with it, it's sincere, and, it, and it's a depth of perception as well, but we can practice it and use it. I'll say more about the other elements, the Buddha uses them in a number of ways, um, but I want to first pick up something that I also learned from this, heard from this Ecosatva training, from another teacher, I, uh, from Dara, Williams, and she uh, offered a teaching on this training also. And in it, she was talking about ritual and invoking the elements at the beginning of a meeting as a way. And, you know, the elements are, perceiving elements is common in many cultures still. Um, uh, I would probably say that common and valued in ones that have less tried to rise above <laughs> the earth, uh, f- you know, that there's still a closeness in that, to that material uh, knowing of the sacred through the materiality. So I'm going to offer her invocation uh, to us. I'm just going to change the, one of the words slightly. Um, and as you hear it, see how much of you can hear it hearing through ears. Maybe there's a hearing that can happen through the heart. I'm sure many of you know that. Maybe there's a hearing and a seeing and a feeling that can happen through the body. Maybe there's depths to our capacity to perceive that we can both rediscover and go further with together. This is for us. We remember the sacred through the elements. Earth, fire, water, and air. 
We honor the sacred through the element of earth. We honor the sacred through the earth. You are earth. You are dark. You are heavy. You are deep. You are fertile. You are grounded. We are earth. We are deep. We are fertile. We are grounded. We are dark. Breathing as we honor the element of earth. We honor the sacred through the element of water. We are water. You are water. You are fluid. You are clear. You are vital. You are refreshing. You are renewed. We honor the sacred through the element of fire. You are fire. You are bright. You are hot. You are intense. You are illuminating. (coughs) We honor the sacred through the element of air. We are air. You are air. You are light. You are unencumbered. You are movement. You are fast. You can change direction quickly. We honor the sacred through the element of air. So it's breathing and reflecting and inquiring a little bit. I, may, I might read it again in a second. Just see how and if it struck you this invocation. Did you have a favorite element? (laughs) One that you identify more with? One that you thought, oh, I haven't thought about that one for a while. I could use a little bit more of that one. Right? Did it not resonate at all? Did it resonate? Resonate means (coughs) to pulsate along with something. And as we get sensitive, our resonating capacity increases like an instrument that gets tuned as physical instrument and also as chitta, this sensitive, receptive, malleable mind heart, which I will dare to use the S word what we might call soul, right? And just for the Buddhists in the room, not in any ultimate (laughs) sense, right? But that that resonance sensitivity that um, is what the Buddha is speaking to in terms of what knows freedom, what can know freedom. So the resonance of both on the bodily level, your bones, your flesh maybe, maybe the wateriness, have you ever noticed, some of you, and you know, maybe I don't need to tell you this, but I offer it. You know, any of you attracted to hanging around next to water? <laughs> yeah, why? Well, we can say we like it and I like swimming and yes, why? <laughs> we resonate. We know the element, we, or we want to know the element more. We want to 
merge with it. We want to be embraced by it. We want to resonate with the water. It, it's, we are water. Science, tell, what is it? We're 75% water, these bodies? Something like this, yeah. Right? Fire, who likes sitting by a fire? Yeah, humans have done this, I think, for quite some time. <laughs> something of the fire. Some, something of the fire. Earth. That fertile, fecund. I looked up that word, fecund. Isn't it a great word in English? It's not that different from fertile, but it has a bit more <coughs> in it. <laughs> Fecund is this which can, from which things can grow out of, right? right that, ex- that mysterious thing, expanding, right? And the one I f- always forget, the air, the wind element. Ah. <sighs> I remember this yogi uh, in England in the summer, and he, he reported, he said, I was doing standing meditation outside today, and he said the, uh, this, the wind just was kind of, I think it was kind of knocking him a bit. It wasn't just like, I think mean, it was a little bit more like that. And he goes, but he could stand. There was enough earth element to withstand and stand. And he could really let the wind element externally um, move him. And he said that the mind was sensitive and quieted enough that it became a prayer. He said it was like a prayer, being in that element. So what happens when I offer this in this way? I'm going to repeat a little bit. You might, res- you might resist it, like, no, 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 I don't want to pick up. That's some old-fashioned thing of looking at the elements. Well, (laughs) we're trying on, we're making the mind malleable to pick up different lenses of perception. Because otherwise, it's not like we're left with the best ones or the right ones. We're left with the sort of cultural ones that we've sort of inherited and we're sort of, we're looking out through the world with for better and for worse. Right? So we want to expand that. To make the mind malleable, we pick things up that will serve. So see what it's like to look at yourself or the sense the other bodies in the room, or me, because I'm the one at the front here. And I will also be trying on this lens as I perceive my fellow beings here. I honor the sacred through you, through the element of earth. You are earth, you are dark, you are fertile, you are deep, you are grounded, you are firm. I honor the elements, the sacred through, through the water as you, in you, through you. You are water, you are fluid, you are clear, you are vital, you are refreshing, you are renewable. I honor, we honor the sacred through the element of fire in you, as you, through you. You are fire. You are bright. You are hot. You are intense. You are illuminating. 
We honor, I honor the sacred through the element of air in you, as you, and through you. You are air. You are light. You are unencumbered. You are movement. You are fast. You can change direction. What happens, anybody curious, when you try on that way of perceiving? Does it alter? Does it open? Does it close? Anybody willing to say what you notice when you try on that reflection? Yes, hi. Maybe those what? That was oh right, that was a scientific yeah. modality, so it's not so valid now. Yeah, why not? Might Buddha, if you were alive today, might talk about the periodic table or microorganisms eating a decomposing body or something. Yeah, like I, I bet he would actually. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So I guess I can see a metaphorical purpose in that, but I'm wondering from your perspective as a teacher. Thank you. Yeah. Great. I think this is a really great kind of question stroke doubt that fits in there. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it, may, it will have been one of the, co- the, the narratives, of the cosmological narratives that would have been part of his culture, absolutely. Um, and we have many other ones and very beautifully detailed and discriminated and deconstructed ones and, um, that we can also use. Uh, yes, what I think he would say is try those on and see what the effect is. Right. So it's not saying that the ones that we've built and understood through modern science, it's not saying they're more real. It's saying that's another way of looking and it has certain effects. Right. So we look at things, if, what's the effect, if, if I put it two ways, the, the poorer end of a modern view might be, and that's not, I know it's not what you're saying, but I'll illustrate. The poorer end of a modern view might be materiality is uh, a bunch of atoms whizzing around, banging into each other, and uh, try it on and see what the effect is on the heart, on the chitta. Now, it might be, for some, that you try that on, and you go, wow, it's a bunch of atoms whizzing around, and my heart... My love expands and my... Right, might be. You know, there are... Science, there are I'm thinking of um, Stephen Hawking or someone, you know, that, the, that, ex- that kind of love that appears to be there in his way of seeing, right? I don't think it's everyone's experience. There can be, a, there can be depending on how much heart is in it, I would say, and how much contemplative presence there is, there can be a paucity in the view that would go, oh, well, it's just that stuff banging around and I can bang it around too, right? That would be the poor, the loss side of it. But in terms of the richness of the modern view, try it on as a perception. It's not ultimate either. It's another, we could say it's another story that has certain results. Try it on and see the effect on your heart and mind as you try it on. And what I would say in terms of picking this up as a, we could, you know, like a historical uh, way of looking is yes, yes, 
many people today also still use it as a valid way of seeing. And what I would say is part of what we lost in the scientific revolution, we gained, many gains, part of what we lost is certain uh, layering, certain layers and levels of perception in the name of things that can be measured and quantified and right we we gain but we also there's a cost in perception being reduced to what can be measured and um, quantified so use those lenses if they lead onward this is what the buddha would say he's not saying it's ultimate truth he's saying try on this lens does it lead to more wisdom and more compassion and more meeting in the world leading onward or does it lead to more suffering? That would be the measure of wisdom. Does that? Yeah, thank you, yeah. I think in what I understand, uh, there's, a, there's a nice analysis from um, Richard Tarnas, who, who writes a book called The Passions of the Western Mind. And he talks about in that movement into the scientific revolution, the layers that got devalued, that started to get devalued in this new god of measurement ha- has to do with the um, aesthetic, emotional, um, uh, what else, what other levels? Huh? The feminine. the feminine, right. So certain things got valued over certain other things. Right? We lost certain levels of perceiving and part of a whole holistic view will be reclaiming what is skillful about those levels. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Any other ways when you tried on the lens? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm used to trying on this lens um, from a yoga perspective. Oh, yeah. Veda and Sankhya. Yeah. And <clears throat> for me, I find it helpful to, uh, first of all, like when you kind of view the body as just elements and mm-hmm. kind of biology, it really helps kind of cut the story yeah. Mm-hmm. And create space for the story because it's just create space there. And then also using the elements and really the qualities of each element, not so much as like literal water, but like the qualities of fluidity and how we all have different compositions of the elements and how can we use the way of kind of giving context to maybe our inherent um, that, 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 uh, modality of being in the world. So yeah. It's it's the pl- thank you. Yeah. So playing with these different lenses. Thank you. Anybody else notice anything affect your perception as I offered it tonight? Also, yes. Um, I I noticed that I felt um, a sense of freedom. Yeah. Um, through the idea of being permeable, and through that, I had a greater sense of connection to something larger than just myself. Great, I'll repeat that. Uh, did you hear that, Jenny? Shall I repeat? Yeah. Yes. She said she, uh, she noticed a level of freedom through perceiving herself as more permeable and therefore as more permeable, available to something larger. Yeah, to connection. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, I really love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, it's like a fun thing and playing within my mind, thinking about how many traditions have that kind of breathing through. 
Yeah. Uh, indigenous American traditions and Celtic spirituality. And I was also thinking about Christianity, like the body and blood of Christ and that kind of the Eucharist, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of the earth and the, the liquid. And there's so many other ways that cuts through. Like, yeah. I think it's one of those things you can trace all the way through. Yeah. And what's the effect on you as you get as you get that? It's exciting. Yeah. So it gave you a flash of lightning and seeing. Yeah. So the the fire element illuminating your mind in that moment. That's what it can do. There's illumination. Marlon. Yeah. Well, just perhaps in between perspective is that. Those are the qualities that the body can perceive without technology, right. without augmentations of technology. So it's, it's really the sensorium of the body is directly in relationship to this. Thank you. That if more than the elements in itself is the qualia or the qualities that are afforded, the body can afford. Yeah. Thank you. Can I can I repeat as I understood what he uh, he said that yes the elements yes. But what that shows, what that affords, is actually this is a sensate organism that can know directly, not just through, through not just through instruments. So that we are the instrument in that sense, and we can know directly, sensate, and recover the sensate. Actually, recover the sensate. It's one of the other things that's gotten a little marginalised, rather. Recovering the sensate. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else before I move on to Dawn? I'm left a little confused. I feel like it's, it's like a very different list than any of the other lists. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the other lists are, they've always added a lot of like, wisdom that I didn't have to search for. Mm -hmm. But this is like more metaphorical and a little bit more poetic. Great. Thank you for saying that. May I reflect on that? Yeah. I think what's brilliant about, you mean the Buddha's lists and his brilliancy, yeah. So it sounds like hearing others of the lists has been something where you get something, you go, ah, right? You get that illuminating piece. This feels a little more poetic for you, a bit more metaphoric. And my, I would suggest, but try it out, that that's partly because the sensate kind of knowing, that direct kind of knowing takes a little longer, right? It's not as fast as the bright, sharp, delineated, declarative, ah, yeah, I get that. It's, it, it, takes a, it takes a moment, more than a moment. It, it's a recovery. It's like we're coming to our senses in a way. It's a recovery. So I think it can be known directly and with as much acuity as those other lists show us but it's more of an acquired taste for some of us, right? Does that make sense when I say it? So it would be, you know, yesterday I gave the example of attention being both bright and visceral. So we're, we're waking up the viscerality of this instrument. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to move on, actually, because there's more he, he, from the Buddha I want to get to. <laughs> and it might actually shed a little more light when I give you a little bit more from him. Yeah. So I'm going to pick up a, a sutta now from the Buddha uh, where he's talking to his son, uh, Rahula. And I, 
I offer it to you in the, in the context of, also of the, the story of the father speaking to the son. Um, that's because that's what it was, you know. He's not some, somebody else in this moment other than dad saying, hey, son, check, check things out in this way. It might help you. <laughs> right. So um, he's speaking to Rahula, who I think is a monk at this stage, is a monk at this stage. And he is... Uh, I'll, I'll just read you this sentence. He says, Rahula. Rahula says, yes, dad. <laughs> Rahula, anything, any form whatsoever, anything that has come to be whatsoever that is past, that is future or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. He covers all bases, doesn't he, dad? Uh, every form is to be seen as it actually is with right discernment, namely, this is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. This is not what I am. This is the teaching of not-self, right? A more familiar teaching, perhaps, for many of us, the anatta, to try on the lens that what it is we're perceiving cannot be taken as me, mine, or myself. He then offers this to Rahula by the elements. So I want to offer this. So we've had Dara's invocation. We are earth. We are water. We are fire. We are air. And I want you to pick this up. And don't tax your what did Pascal call it last night? Coconut. Don't, <laughs> don't tax your coconut. <laughs> so nice, isn't it? <laughs> don't tax your coconut too much to wrap itself around this. I think this is where we say thank you to our beautiful conceptual capacity and realize its, um, its beauty and its limit so that we can drop a little bit more into these... Uh, Ways of knowing that some of us have forgotten. <laughs> These ways of knowing. Rahula. Yes, Dad. He said, there are these five properties. So we're going to the five elements now. There are these five properties, Rahula. Which five? The earth property, the water property, the fire property, the wind property, and the space property. And what is the earth property, Rahula? And then he answers. He's one of those kinds of dads that just goes on time. <laughs> I remember asking my dad, what is Boyle's Law exactly? Anyway, so this is his equivalent. And what is the earth property? The earth property can be either internal or external. What is the internal earth property, Rahula? Anything internal within oneself that's hard, solid, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth. Try this on. So not just conceptually. It's like, feel those bits. Head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, membranes, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, contents of the stomach, feces, or anything else internal within oneself that's hard and solid. 
This is called the internal earth property, Rahula. Now, both the internal earth property and the external earth property are simply that. And that should be seen as it actually is with right discernment. This is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. When one sees it as it actually is, with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the earth element and dispassionate towards the earth element. Breathe with this one. This is where he's pointing now through the lens of not-self to help us release our attachment to our earth element. Have any of you got any attachment to your earth element? (laughs) (laughs) Right. He's helping us release that. It's really sincere because the suffering around body is deep. When we limit ourselves, or someone else limits us to just the appearance of the way the earth element has arisen in this form, we feel like we're not being seen through the sacred gaze. The sacred includes these multiple levels of perception. You know what it's like. We know what it's like when we see ourselves in the mirror in that way or someone sees us, or we see another just in the way of what's that little bunch of earth element, what can it do for me, you know, how can it enhance me, how is it going to threaten me, right? No, not me, not mine, not myself. One becomes disenchanted. How does that word strike you? Disenchanted. Maybe you can raise your hand if I ask you, does anyone hear that word and go, oh, (laughs) oh, Oh, the Buddha was no fun after all. (laughs) I knew it. It was that nice bit from Dara, and now we're going to have to... All right, all right. Disenchanted, yeah. Anyone go, oh, that's a relief. Anyone have that response to disenchantment? There's three hands, yeah. Interesting, isn't it? I think, as I understand, again, this is middle way disenchantment. It's not killjoy disenchantment. (laughs) It's the kind of disenchantment that leads to cooling out of the agitation of, I've got to get materiality just right. We can go, it's okay. It's okay. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not myself. This is, as one of my teachers says, this is an outcrop of nature. Right? Look at that. This outcrop of nature. Oh, yeah. Right? Not me, not mine, not myself, restores us as an outcrop of nature. It's disenchantment in the sense of illusion, the illusion that it's me. That can be disenchanted from that bubble, And then I would say, via the cooling, via the, oh, oh, it's not what I thought. 
and not too prematurely we can be re-enchanted with the depth of meaning and richness that comes when we recover these different levels of seeing and perception. Recover them to our psyche individually, collectively, including all the beautiful ones that the modern world can help us see through as well. I don't think I'll have time to go through them all, but I will. Um, He basically does that same little spiel with his son, with each of the elements. And I'll just pick up... um, I'll I'll go straight to space. So he does that with water, with fire, with wind. And he goes to space. Rahula, what is the space property? I know, he says. The space property may be either internal or external. And what is the internal space property? Anything internal belonging to oneself that is space, that is spatial. Think about it. What's he going to tell you? The holes in the ears. That's what he says. The holes in the ears, the nostrils, the mouth, the passage whereby what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets swallowed and where it collects, and whereby it is excreted from below, or anything else internal within oneself that's space and spatial. This is called the internal space property. Can any of you sense right now the spaces in your ears? Right? It is a, it's an acquired kind of knowing, sensing the space in your nostrils. You know that in the, uh, the, the limited knowledge I have, and this is the beauty, one of the beauties of what we can see by measuring and looking, in the early forming of the fetus, in cell mitosis, apparently the cells wrap themselves and curve around space, curve around empty space, and from there the organs grow, Right? empty space and that echo of that empty space is here we, we, we're enfolded and wrapped around empty space and we kind of and there's a lot of it still here in fact you know when we look closely with these marvelous things we can do we're a lot of space I've heard it said scientifically that all the matter could actually when we take out the space take out the space. How do you take out the space? <laughs> Could be um, fit on a teaspoon. Have you heard that? Right? Such is the fact of our space internally and externally. The echoes of this space, let's make this a practical teaching. When we're breathing, can you sense the space that allows your ribs to do that? They can only do that because there's room. When we're sitting, contemplating in the morning sitting, the space between the shoulders, the space in the skull, our attention doesn't normally get drawn to space. It gets drawn to the things in space. Can we train our attention and know the echoes of this origin? To know the space. Why? 
because this will lead onward. This will help us see that it is not me, it is not mine, it is not myself. And in so doing can make us transparent more to a bigger perspective, what I'm calling the sacred, meaning a more total, developed, rich layering of perception. Well, let's see, I'll have to stop at a certain point. Um, I would I want to let you know that in this teaching to his son, he goes on to talk about those qualities in terms of the mind, the same qualities in terms of the mind. He says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth develop mind that is like the earth. What is a mind that is like the earth? What is a chitta? What is a soul that is like the earth? What is those qualities of earth applied to the mind? Firm. We're back to Dara's piece. Firm. Grounded. Not knocked around by the vagaries of the wind steady, here, develop a mind, like the earth, Rahula. He says, because when you do agreeable and disagreeable things that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. They will not stay in charge of your mind. Develop a meditation that is like the earth. We can practice this. We can breathe out and know the, 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 the firmness that comes from the samatha, the firmness when we stay continuous with our practice. We become firm. I remember one Zen teacher, he said, my senior students, they are like tofu. <laughs> I was like, oh God, I don't, don't want to join your school. Um, but I think what he meant was, I don't think they were all just sort of bland and pale. <laughs> but I think what he meant was there has this sort of texture of that firmness. Right? You know tofu, don't you? Yeah. Right? We can develop meditation like the earth. And he goes on, develop meditation, Rahula, that is like water. Because when you do, agreeable and disagreeable things that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. What is a mind that is like water? Somebody whose watery quality, it's, it's, it has an elegance to it, water. It's fluid. It's shapeable. It's uh, movable. It's um, agreeable. Downside, a mind like water, it can be a little conflict avoidant. <laughs> it's hard to sometimes get a straight word when it's not balanced with earth. Right, but a mind that is like water, flexible, vital, refreshing. We can do this. We do this by doing the practice. You may have noticed your mind getting fresher, fresher in the way you can go out and see the light on the snow, light you might have forgotten to look at last winter. The freshness, the vitalizing, the renewing of the mind. Mind, the heart mind, the chitta. Rahula, develop meditation, 
develop a mind that is like the wind, a mind that is in tune with space, and a meditation and a mind in tune with fire. For when you develop meditation in tune with fire, agreeable and disagreeable impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. Just as when fire burns, what is clean or unclean, feces, urine, saliva, pus or blood, it is not horrified, it is not humiliated, it is not disgusted. And in the same way, develop a mind that is like fire. And then difficult things will not stay in charge of your mind. What is a mind like fire? Quick to rise. Bright. Hot. We heard it in Dara's invocation. Fire not balanced. Someone who's just fire. (laughs) Identified with fire. Yes, I'm fiery can distort and get stuck in anger, can get that fire in the mind when it's not balanced, can be so bright and discerning, it just gets from discernment to critical and judging. And Can I work with this practically when I see my aversion arise, my anger arise? Firstly, it's not me or mine. This is anger. Oh, yeah, this is anger. This is aversion. This is irritation. Okay. Okay, there it is in the mind. There's the story. Can I know this through the body? Can I know the fire? It's hot. When you're angry, you're likely to be hot and burning a little bit. This is the fire element. It's not personal. It belongs to nature. But we may have seized it and taken it as me or mine. What happens, you, all of you who know and have practiced in this way, let that fire, feel it in your belly, cook. <coughs> let the element do its work. And what is the work of fire? It heats things up. It's needed in a chemical process. It heats things up and when you can stand the fire, it works to expand you, widen you, not just go up to the head and into your um, discernment. As beautiful as that can be, when it's not balanced, it can become harsh. So burn, cook, as one of my teachers used to say. You can cook a bit more. (laughs) Ooh, okay. What would it be like to see that? Okay, I'm cooking. Okay, I'll do this. Don't know if it's going to lead anywhere good, but I'm burning up right now. Can I meet it on that sensorial level so that this instrument can refine like the alchemist's base metal into gold? Uh, I'll finish with a poem. I think I just want to acknowledge there's, there's a lot more there um, in the Buddha's teaching to his son that we could usefully reflect upon. But I'd like to finish with 
um, poem somewhere. Another take and another way of seeing by a poet called Lisa Starr. She it's called I question the seven sacred directions and they answer. Right, you first she's talking to air. Who taught you to touch my hair that way? Which chest of which bird is your favorite? Why so moody? To the fire, she says. Could you control yourself if you had to? You know I'm not afraid to look you in the eye, don't you? Are you ever sorry when the barn collapses on the bleating cows? Do you have a lover? Then she says to the water. If it's not true that I'm your daughter, will you lie to me? Which do you like better, the calm or the storm? To the earth. Can you feel my embrace? Do you ever want to throw your hands up and walk away from it all? Do you plan your reactions or do they just happen? Then she asks above, do you really listen to our prayers and songs? Are you ever lonely? Do you weep more when we make peace or war? Below. Who taught you your patience? Are there ever moments when we will all dance together? And within. Why this fist around my belly? Can't you do something about this sorrow? Answers. Because you are my daughter, you shouldn't have had to ask. For every question, one blade of grass. For every sorrow, one golden shaft of wheat. For your loneliness, I give you children, laughing. Have you seen me blow and ripple through the long grass? It's like that with your hair. As for the cows, I am sorry for their fear. But one day you will understand that even their pain was necessary. Walk away from all this green? Never. And about my lover, none of your business. (laughs) And one more thing, dear one. Sometimes you are afraid to look me in the eye. And then, and only then, do I feel lonely. One more thing, dear one. Sometimes you are afraid to look me in the eye. And then, and only then, so I feel lonely. Yes, let's sit together as marvelous outcrops of nature. <laughs>
May all beings be able to rest and breathe out in safety as earth sitting on earth. May all beings know joy as water. May all beings know the heart's release from suffering. So as you take some time for walking, um, see how and if this lands, but the way we can practice it is through this uh, recovery for many of us of this visceral way of knowing, step by step, giving our weight back to earth in the walking meditation, giving my weight back in the step, relinquishing not me, not mine, and I return in each step. And let's meet back uh, at nine. So if the bell ringer could ring at five, two. Um, Normally it's ten, two. Oh, it takes ten minutes, okay. Okay, let's leave it. Actually, if the bell ringer rings at five to nine and we meet back at five past nine um, for the last sitting of the night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.